we're in this age of, of just kind of madness, really, quite frankly. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Matt Stratton, and co-hosting with me is... Trevor Hess. Yay. So yeah, it's been a couple years or almost two years since we last visited the topic of DevOps and Microsoft Chops. Hey, that right. The last time we did that, I think I was in Paris, and you have to drink now. That's true. That's true. If you're playing the rest of DevOps drinking game, if Trevor talks about being in another country, take a drink. So anyway, we're talking about Microsoft and DevOps tonight. Uh, with the largest panel in Arrested DevOps history, uh, citation needed, at least on a recorded show, a, non, a non-DevOps days show. The show notes for this episode can be found at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Microsoft 2. But first, a word from our sponsors. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. 10th Magnitude empowers businesses to better collaborate across teams and achieve IT transformation using cloud. They enable customers to innovate, automate, and accelerate by leveraging the power of Microsoft Azure. You can find out more at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is sponsored by VictorOps. Built for modern incident management, VictorOps provides a unified platform for real-time alerting, collaboration, and documentation. Driven by your IT and DevOps system data, VictorOps helps you respond to incidents more effectively so you can minimize downtime and make being on-call suck less. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash VictorOps to schedule a demo or start your trial. Mention that you heard about VictorOps here on Arrested DevOps, and you'll be eligible for some sweet discounts, too. This episode is also brought to you by Hired. Hired is a platform for top developer jobs, and they love DevOps people. Developers get an average of 5 to 10 offers on the platform, all with just one application. You get job offers and salary or equity up front before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not want. And they work with over 4,000 companies, from startups to large public companies all over the place. ADO listeners get double the $2,000 bonus just for signing up at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Hired. As I mentioned before, the last time that we had a show dedicated to the trials and tribulations of doing the DevOps in Microsoft environments was back in February of 2015 with Jeffrey Snover and Jessica DeVita. You can check out that episode at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Microsoft dash DevOps. Apparently Trevor was in Paris. Whoop-dee-doo. Uh, but this time we have a much larger panel of DevOps practitioners who live their lives doing this Microsoft stuff. So let's go around the horn and introduce the panel. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Liam Bennett. I work for an organization called Clarinet, who are a managed hosting provider. Uh, I spend kind of all day, every day uh, with Windows workloads on AWS, Azure, GCP. Uh, my claim to fame that you might also know me as, uh, I previously worked at OpenTable as the infrastructure engineer there and released all of the Puppet modules that are, live in the community. Uh, this is Brandon. I'm a, uh, a systems engineer at Columbia Sportswear, and um, I spend most of my day trying to figure out how to do DevOps on Windows. <laughs> uh, so typical systems engineer type stuff, managing the infrastructure and uh, figuring out how to automate as much as you can with PowerShell and Chef and various other tools. 
Yeah, my name's Ruben. I am the DevOps practice lead at a company called Freedom in New Zealand. So we're an online platform system for payments, travel, and expense. And I don't do as much coding or infra as what I used to, so I'm more about the coaching and getting people inspired. Hi, I'm Glenn Sardi. I'm a senior software developer at Puppet, specializing uh, in Windows. Been doing this about a year at Puppet, and previously I'm doing desktop infrastructure automation in Australia. I'm Chris Hunt. I'm a Windows platform engineer at Ticketmaster, and uh, big claim to fame at the moment is uh, a pretty sizable DSC implementation. That is, uh, we're approaching a thousand nodes on a pool server. So this is pretty cool. We've got a a pretty wide range of technical implementations, different roles of what people are doing. So uh, everyone alluded a little bit to the environments where they work, but I kind of want to get a feel for what's working well. What are you, in the environment where you're at with, with some of the stuff you're doing with regard to DevOps, where are you, you know, kicking ass? And there's a follow up question to that. Uh, I'll say uh, DSC is working well for us with the uh, the caveat of it's challenging. I think for us, uh, what's working well is figuring out how to use uh, uh, automation pipelines to get our work done. And um, quite a bit of uh, uh, work has been done in uh, uh, chat ops, trying to expose uh, tasks to other groups um, who may not necessarily have the skills um, or access to do various things. That's really working well for us and gaining a, quite a bit of excitement. Yeah, the, oh, PowerShell has been an absolute saver for us. So trying to bring Windows into the puppet world, just, just going from strength to strength with, with PowerShell. Yeah, PowerShell and uh, Chocolatey, uh, how we distribute stuff uh, all over uh, the platform, making from users' desktops to test environments all the same, abstracting that away. So that's been really well. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about those those two components being so critical to be able to move with any kind of rapidity, right? Or velocity is a robust shell and package management, right? Like we didn't have that in the Microsoft world before. And it made a lot of this stuff a lot of a lot of what you would think of as automation was just macros as a way that I would think about it. When I think about like how I would write like old VB scripts and stuff like that, at the end of the day, it was the equivalent of a macro, which was like, do this thing, do this thing, but you want to actually do any like thinking about that thing, it becomes a lot more challenging and you have to introspect so much. You have to make so many more assumptions. Um, I, I, I'm super jealous of all of you because I've spent most of my like working career before I went to go hand wave at a vendor as a windows system administrator. And like, it's all so much more rad now. <laughs> you know, It's like, I'm like, damn man, you know, we thought, you know, and I, I, I'm pretty sure all of you have been through that too. So none of that's like, you know, but I'm just like, yeah, I'm super jealous that like all this cool shit's there. And I'm like, I don't get to use it except to help my customers. Yeah. We don't really like to talk about the dark days uh, in DB script. <laughs> I'd like to forget about On it. On error, resume next. <laughs> well, I just, I mean, we've gone like 10 years and just recently, I guess the last year or so, have a way to distribute 
package and distribute modules. So everything before that was like hacky scripts to install. And so now we actually can sort of version things and share code. Uh, that alone has also been a big help. So, I mean, thinking about that, of where the, where the strides have been, have been happening, there's, I want to think about from the, I guess I would call it, it's not even necessarily a community of practice, but, uh, and I don't even necessarily call it a community, but it's more of a, I can't think of the right word, a, a common, common work folks. Listeners, I'm on two hours sleep. Um, anyway. <laughs> But when we say like, okay, one thing we have in common, we're kind of a guild of Microsoft system engineers of some kind, right? You know, and as as a practice, how we've evolved over the last decade or so, there's practice, there's things that we've changed, but there's also places where Microsoft, the company, has changed. And so we said, okay, well, two of the things that were super important were PowerShell and then Chocolatey, right? Like having some type of good package management, having a robust shell. But, uh, you know, and I think, uh, Brandon, you alluded to, again, like being able to share code and like thinking about how that mentality has maybe changed. Like that was something I think was unheard of 10 years, unheard of five years ago, other than uh, code. You know, maybe you might throw something on code, pl- but, oh, geez, what was that? There was like a website where people like shared like system administration VB scripts. Because I bet you if I look through my was old bookmarks, was it scripts? Yeah. Maybe that was, yeah, I'm going to find it. Yeah. And it was like, you'd go and you'd like search and be someone wrote a VB script for like adding users to like an active directory group or whatever and all this other stuff. And, and it wasn't really open source. I mean, it had to be cause it's VB script. It's yeah, there was no uh, source license. open, <laughs> but there was no way to help make it better. Right. And are you seeing uh, with your, with yourselves, with your teams, with people in your own communities, how are you seeing kind of that adoption of this model of open sourcing the things that you're doing, given that we come from a very, closed source platform up until recently all right so i spend mo- most of the stuff that we do is based on open source tools um and we spend a lot of time in that ecosystem um and on the microsoft repos that they've released and we're seeing we're seeing a lot more people um contribute to those things what i think is important is that for those organizations, it required Microsoft to make that first move. It was essentially 2014 when Bulma stepped away from Microsoft. It was entirely, it's a massive culture shift for them. Um, and they just got permission to to do all of these things that, that, that they've wanted to do for, for a while. And, but it required for the rest of the Microsoft community as a, as a whole it required microsoft to make that first move to give them permission to say okay it's okay to to do open source now because we're doing it first yeah well also microsoft had sort of a history of building their own solution so you could invest in something open source and then they just come along and create a commercial product and kind of 
kill you. But now it seems like you can start an open source product and they'll just contribute to it instead of clobbering you and building their own. That said, I mean, I've worked for a lot of banks and military and you know, government organizations. Getting people used to contributing to code outside of their firewall is still a big challenge. Um, no idea how to get around it, but um, hopefully the Microsoft being more open and more forward about their open sourcing, that they can at least show that it's, it's possible to do those kind of things. Yeah, that's something that kind of interesting with a lot of, I would call traditional enterprises is, one, it's using open source is probably less of a barrier, but actually contributing back to open source is a much harder thing to get people on board with. Yeah, I was I was, was going to say, you know, the comfort level with using open source software is expanding. But and, and to be honest, it's it's I, I, I kind of see that it's not really specifically always around the Microsoft stuff. It's like behind that firewall, wherever it is there's kind of this resistance and it's, it's a lot of times it seems to be um, having to do with like the company's lawyers, like starting to understand digital a little better. Right. And a lot of times there's, I think this concern that either it's going to set some precedent that's going to release other IP. That's really important to them that like, Oh, because we open source this chef cookbook, well, that's a precedent. So now somebody else can think that like this movie that we made is in the public domain too. And I know that sounds like crazy, but that's what lawyers are for is to think of the crazy things that someone might want to do. Right. Or also getting an understanding of what's plumbing and what's different. Right. You know, and, and I, I remember when I was at, uh, at apartments, we did, uh, you know, we did when we did our big migration from VMware to Hyper-V and Microsoft was like, cool, let's do a whole big like article about this because nobody's been dumb enough to do that yet. Because at the time, that was the thing. Not, not saying Hyper-V is dumb, but this was years and years ago. It was like, they're like, oh, wow, someone's really doing this. Awesome. And it was a big thing with like our PR people because they're like, whoa, you know, rent.com is going to know what we do for virtualization. I'm like, they could give a shit. <laughs> Like, I'm glad you think what I do is so important, but it really doesn't matter, right? It's, it's, this is all just block and tackle of that stuff. And I think in, and I guess, cause there's so much stuff that's tied to like line of business application stuff that's really usually more tied on the Microsoft side is I think why people tend to feel a little more resistant to the open nature of it. Um, but I also should caveat to say that like I'm the first person to make sure to, you know, say that I don't think that the only place that people are doing Microsoft stuff is line of business stuff. I mean, it's running obviously a lot of cool, sexy front end shit too, but there's such a preponderance of that, that I think it's, it's harder for people to see from a legal perspective within a company, like why would they care about sharing that kind of thing? I don't know. And are you seeing like also, is that stuff seems like it's built a little more fit for purpose, right? You know, sometimes like, why would it be common? I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like the open source licensing is opened up more as well. More people are putting out MIT licenses and permissive licenses. I know years ago we looked at it and, you know, the license would say, if, if you put this in your software, you have to open source your software. So, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't use an open source library 
or you have to open source your whole line of business. That obviously doesn't work. But now that, like you said, businesses are starting to separate sort of that plumbing code from their business code. They don't mind being open with that, letting anybody do what they want with it commercially. Um, I'm curious with anyone who's working in a shop that's that's very uh, .NET, Visual Studio, TFS, Extreme, whatever they're calling it today. But you know what I mean? Like that developer, the developer stack, the Microsoft developer stack kind of piece. One of the things that I found to be true that was actually super challenging in a pre-DevOps world, because we didn't know to call it DevOps at the time, but if we're going to try to do that in a shop like that was that so much stuff was built to make things really easy for the developer to package their stuff up and do all this stuff. And it was super hard to then take that stuff that came from MS build or web build or whatever and actually operationalize it. And I'm, I'm wondering what's been, you know, like I said, you know, and a lot of folks saying like, Hey, we're using a lot of open source tools where, you know, we're using this other, I mean, is anyone using, um, and I know, you know, uh, at Ticketmaster using DSC, but is anyone using uh, the Microsoft stack for deployment, like Visual Studio Server or whatever TFS is called now, <laughs> and MS Bill, you know, and, and all basically the prescribed Microsoft way? Is anyone doing that it, on the call, not in general? I know people are doing it in general. We're doing some components of that, but we're not using. Um, we're using Team City as opposed to VSTS. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a big kind of problem with VSTS and the fact that we talk about running our builds differently on a server than what we do locally. And the develop the whole Visual Studio experience has always been about the developer and everything just needing one pane of glass, one application, which has some has some really good outcomes for a developer. But that right-click publish, oh my gosh, it's such a it's such a nightmare. And so people then just, you know, their their, their definition of done when they're finished is just a package. And in the day of a monolith, that might be really okay because all my package and all my dependencies can be articulated at compile time. But when you're jumping into the world of distributed computing that can make the ops people very mad. And it, and again, I could be showing my, it's been a while since I've had to, to deal with it, but it was, again, like you said, it was built from the, pers- you know, a lot of it's built from the perspective of I'm the developer, I've got the code base and I'm just spraying it somewhere. So like so much stuff was built on transforms, right? Like this is how I know this has happened. So I'm going to write all my configs and it's going to have like basically at the end of the day said, right? That's going to go and do some some replacing for whatever these strings should be. And it meant that you had to, like, you you had to really understand Visual Studio to deploy an application. And then we, like, we, you know, with us, we sat there and we're like, well, we're not going to buy this, you know, at the time, eight to $10,000 license for every sysop who needs to deploy. So it ended up being everything ended up having to be very manual. We couldn't even use Microsoft's tools because it didn't scale. Right. Because they're like and I know they've gotten better about that in terms of at least making it a little easier to, to get at this stuff. I think that's gotten gotten smarter around that. That being said, so what would thinking about that mentality, if you will, that's kind of in that more traditional dot net workflow. 
what have been some of the things you've gone through culturally within your organizations, maybe to get people to kind of care a little bit more about operationalizing their code? So I think I can talk to some of this. Um, I was a release engineer in a previous life. Um, and I think that the cultural aspect is, is actually you, you, you win most of these places over just by making it easier. Um, for the, for the most part, you can kind of pull away from some of the traditional Microsoft tooling. Um, if you can make the solution that you're proposing easier, um, a lot of, a lot of the pain points that, that I've seen, um, you know, particularly around VSTS, um, there's the re- there's, there's good reasons why people are pulling away from some of the components of that. Um, it's all nicely integrated and that's, that's great. Um, but actually, what you get as a result of that is you get things that are kind of not best of class but culturally because it's the microsoft product they feel bound to it so you have to provide something that is better in order to get any traction in 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 doing something else but you only have to do that once or twice and then they'll start to question the whole the whole thing um they'll start to question you know whether there are other bits that 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 don't necessarily have to come from redmond um vsts is a is a really good example um because you know team city is increasingly common in what we see now um we see a bit of jenkins as well um the source control element of of vsts is dying incredibly fast um even microsoft themselves are moving to git now um actually was an interesting just a kind of sidebar there was an interesting thing that they said recently about moving um the windows core code base over to git which is which is apparently 40 billion lines of code um which takes a little bit of time to clone apparently but but they're even they're moving away from some of the bits themselves as they as they it's probably is tied into some of the open source stuff as well that they're they're kind of moving away. So you know it if they're again it's it's back to what I said at the beginning. If 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 they're doing it first, they're kind of giving permission to to for for the cultures that they've created to also change. I agree. And I've definitely been places where it's the Microsoft is the answer. What's the question? And and to be fair, there's places where IBM's the answer. What's the question? You know, and um, I I think it was at the uh, Adam Jacobs talked about this at a couple different ChefConf keynotes where he'll say that, you know, kind of in the old software vendor way, right? Like you had your one major software vendor and you know, y'all went out golfing and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, I need a thing that does a thing. And you'd call up your vendor and he'd be like, well, we sort of have a thing that does that. And you're like, cool, give me that thing. Right. And then it sucks because that's not really what they're good at. So I, I agree that like, um, like Liam said, like once you at least can open that up to say, let's put the the Redmond tool on the same playing field as the other tools, right? Like, so if we make that decision, we're making it with intentionality, and not just because, and I think Microsoft has made that way easier in number one, like you said, by leading by example, by saying like, hey, we don't even do our thing. Like this was one of the things for me uh, with running, you know, a pretty heavily trafficked e-commerce site on that was all Microsoft based and then trying to manage it and monitor it from the front end using SCOM. 
and I, you know, one point was like talking to Microsoft. I'm like, what do you guys use to manage to monitor Microsoft.com? And they're like, not scam. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like we use Gomez. And it's like, okay. And but so it's first of all leading by example to say, like, hey, maybe this isn't the right thing. And then again, System Center is um a good example of this where they made it way too much like, well, if you want this thing, you gotta have this thing. And like this was a thing that you know Stover's been saying for the last couple of years, which is the Hey, would I rather you ran um, .NET application on your? You've got a Windows server. Would I rather you're running a .NET application? Yes, but you want to run a Java app on it. Okay, okay. In Azure, would I rather it's a Windows VM? Yes, but you want to run a Linux VM. Okay, they're like I'm getting paid somewhere, right? And so there's that decoupling of of the need for all of those pieces is making it simpler. I think what's what's hard within an organization of the size of Microsoft, and I've, I've said this before, is that I feel like up at the very top, they get it, right? And like down at the line, like the engineers get it. The middle management and the sales don't get it yet, right? Like there's still, it's still, there's a lot of stuff that gets, gets pushed. Though it's hard if you are an organization that's not like really driving that cultural change to like, look at the other stuff, you can get a lot of messaging from, you still are comfortable with that kind of primary vendor. I'm curious. So Glenn, like you've been building a lot of tooling around integrating, you know, like you said, kind of, I I'm, I'm intrigued because like, I've got some thoughts on it from the chef perspective. I think we're talking about, you know, doing a lot of the same stuff, but taking tools like chef or puppet that were kind of never intended to, to work in that space and in both cases, I think, you know, Windows is a first class citizen on either in either of those frameworks now. Um, what's that experience been like for you to kind of help help that journey along or what have you observed? It's interesting. So you got people that have, you know, been using Windows back in the dark days and they don't want to ever touch it again. You've got new people that come into the into uh, you know the Windows infrastructure and they've used things like Visual Studio and things like that and going yeah we can you know this great IDE. So you've got people on both sides. I've even had a Linux admin who is actually absolutely loving PowerShell and hating that they have to go back to Bash. But yeah, it's interesting trying to apply things like Puppet and Chef and uh, DSL and things like that, trying to get people's uh, mind changed about how you're actually going to model infrastructure as opposed to just deploying infrastructure. Particularly in a Windows world, we're so used to just next, 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 finished. I think there's also a thing from the vendor perspective, and it's it's funny, like the irony is this was the the, uh, the lesson that Microsoft learned, themselves learned the hard way with Office 6, I think it was, on Mac, right? Where they said, because Office you know, Word on Mac and was amazing, right? Like from day one, you know, it was there before it was there for Windows. And then it was like, I, and again, I may get my history wrong, but I think it was like Office version six. They're like, let's make it look just like the Windows version. And it was terrible because it's like, it's a different operating, it's a different thing. And that's been one of the things that I know within Chef, when we look at that, we're like, what we don't want to do is take like there's certain things that are commonality, right? You're like, like you said, the way you model infrastructure in certain ways, it, do, it really doesn't matter where you're coming from. But when we're looking at things like stuff that we're looking doing with Habitat or things like with, with that, we're like, 
you want people to be in where their comfort zone is. Like the tool should not get in your way. It should be like, hey, if I'm a Microsoft, if I'm a Windows sysadmin, I do have a way of looking at the world. And that's not a wrong way, right? That's not a dig. It's just a different way. And if I have to completely like turn my my world on my ear for the 10 minutes a day that I use this other tool, that's just totally, that's then, then I as the toolsmith completely failed, right? Like it, it needs to be, it needs to feel like windows stuff feels a certain way. Like Unix stuff feels a certain way. I think you chef and Papa need to do both better jobs at trying to onboard windows people into that kind of space. I, mean, I did a public conf talk about that, you know, how not to freak out when you start running modules for Windows. So we have a lot of work to do. I think it's also the Microsoft is helping us by making the that ecosystem easier to address. Um, there's something if you, and I'll put a link in the show notes if I remember, but uh, one of my favorite episodes of DevOps Cafe was years and years ago when they had Jeffrey Snover on. And it's when, you know, first time I ever heard him make the reference to the difference is Unix and Linux are a document-based operating system and Windows is an API-based operating system. And that's why you have to treat them differently. And that was sort of his story about like, you know, Snover came to Microsoft to write Unix tools for Windows and was going to be like, oh, this is easy, no problem. And then went, holy shit, this is totally different, right? It's, It's hard to do. And that's been, you know, that was, again, some of the early challenges with, and I was doing Puppet and Chef on Windows when Puppet and Chef on Windows was not the thing that you really were supposed to do. Uh, and it was super duper hard because except for IIS, there's a reason IIS is also the example everybody uses because it's document-based, so it's super easy to, to manage. But as we, as, as Microsoft gives us that ability, like we don't have to hack our way around it. That's the thing. And I imagine it's similar in the Puppet world, but like if I think about bootstrapping in Chef, Linux has a bunch of stuff I already have for free that I could just get at. I'm like, I have SSH. I know what's going to be there. I know exactly how to get at it. It's going to work, you know, 99% of the time it works hundred percent of the time. Cool. Then I go to WinRM and I'm like, every single enterprise in the world is scared shitless of WinRM. The first thing they do is turn it off because they're freaked out, blah, 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 all this stuff. And so we have to do all these hacks. And it's also like, kind of hard to set up because like okay i want to have a common set of of uh i want to secure my sshd that's a file dump this file on all my servers now i'm done now i want to secure my winrm i want to make sure that i've got winrm configured properly across all my things from boot time well run this command dump this registry key do this this so so what do i do as an infosec person just say screw it turn it off no no winrm so like is as as Microsoft, and I think they've, you know, are getting better at, at at thinking about remote management first. Obviously, I think that makes it easier as a toolsmith to make the onboarding not make the onboarding more delightful because you don't have these yaks you have to shave just to get started. Yeah, not not all of us are uh, Matt Rock. Um, <laughs> few few of us are. <laughs> Yeah, onboarding these tools is really a kind of a, a super important concept to to get right for a lot of people, especially when you have um, Windows admins who are not familiar with these technologies, and you're to, you're telling them this is the new way to do things. And if you if they keep on running into roadblock at the roadblock at the roadblock, what incentive do they have to keep trying? 
you know, it's very easy to just pull to throw up your hands and say, you know what, this is not going to work. So whatever the community can do and vendors can do to make this as frictionless as possible is, is the right way to do this. Has anybody used the Docker for Windows installer? I've installed it. I also ran it to prove Glenn wrong about something once. <laughs> I'm just bring, bringing that up as actually a good example of how you can have the best of both worlds because the installer is graphical, it mm-hmm. works, and you can still fall back to good old Docker commands. It's, a, it's actually a pleasure to use when it works. Yeah, and it's 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 funny. I actually feel like the, maybe it's because I'm not on my Windows machine as much, but I'm like, I feel like it works better than it does on my Mac because Docker for Mac seems like it's every third release is the one that goes, this uses 5,000% CPU randomly now. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and I'm like, the Windows one doesn't seem to do that. I would agree that that experience, I think the Docker team did a really good job from that onboarding perspective. And I don't, I'm going to ask, you know, I guess folks who've who've used it, like I'm obviously more familiar with Chef DK. Like, I think we've come a long way. I think obviously there's still work to do, but the Chef DK installer is pretty nice, right? In terms of it's, it's a graphical installer, it gets you your pieces and it gives you a shell that's already configured the way it's supposed to be. So it gets you most of the way you're supposed to be there. But there's still stuff where it's like, and then it's like, but, oh, you want this thing to work? Well, go read the doc on the GitHub repo and and run this command into your profile and do this. And it's like, but really, shouldn't that be a choice? And so, like, is there, so when I'm trying to onboard, just sort of thinking through other technology and other things like that, like, um, like, well, let's say, like, you know, let's talk about, like, DSC, for example. What's that experience like if I'm like, I want to start doing DSC? Like, do I totally freak out? Is it is it a delightful onboarding experience? Is it something that I have to really, really want because I'm going to push real hard to get, get there? What do you think? Uh, I'd say it's delightful for about one server. And then after that, it starts to go downhill. Yeah, you really kind of need a management platform to uh, to deal with DSC correctly. And I think Microsoft has stated that as well. It's like, well, you know, that's, what, that's where Chef and Puppet can help you out. Um, you could, of course, roll your own, but uh, that would uh, that would be a hard uh, hard chore to, to accomplish. I think that's the hard part about that, right? And that's the 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 quote, right? Is that I've, is this again? This is he's not on the show, but we might as well be because we're going to quote Snow for like every twenty seconds. Uh, you know, is the you know DSC is a printer driver, you know, Chef or Puppet is Microsoft Word. You know, you're, you're, you're wrapping into that. I guess I was, I th- I'm thinking about like when I want to get started, I'm like, Hey, I want to write a thing like again, zero to delight, right? Like, okay, I want to sit down. I want to start infra coding my infra, you know, it's like, it's still, it's way better than it used to be. Like I remember when I was at 10th and if we were had customers that were going to be chef customers, we'd be like, here is the 12 page document of how to set up your workstation so that you can write some chef code. Right. And now it's like, okay, cool. So there's at least there's chef DK. And now here's like three more pages of document to be able to enable DSC. If you want to write DSC research, you know, use the DSC provider and stuff like that. And, What's your wish list for like making all that better? For for me, and and we do, we it, we essentially have the model of 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 using Puppet to wrap DSC. Actually, at this point, and I've used a bit of Chef as well. 
actually at this point most of most of the tools in terms of initial usability are actually pretty good on the whole um it is it's actually this now the second and third step of maturity that's that's the next roadblock because it there's a huge jump in going from okay i can you know install puppet or chef and i can create some resources you know i can create some files and i can install some packages but then there's generally this huge other jump of okay now you know in the DSC example you know you kind of have to have this management infrastructure even with you know even with puppet these days you kind of have a huge chunk of infrastructure to to manage to 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 roll that out to a sizable amount of machines and so there's this kind of there's this kind of gap between okay i've got some basic stuff running but then you know here's how i manage my entire fleet there's a there's a kind of a big a big step there that that I imagine most of us on this call have been down that rocky path, but it's it, that isn't that isn't at all smooth, and ev- everyone seems to kind of take a different path down it. But it, it's all kind of very much the same, um, and it's down to things like it's down to things that are common across a lot of communities, which are you know this is how I structure my projects, this is how I you know, this is how and why I need that management framework. Um, you know, this is why the audit tools and things are there. Um, and all, all of those components that make up config management in production um, is, is not necessarily a story that, that is, I think, as well told as it could be. Have you found it uh, kind of governed or shaped by the culture of the company you're in? I think so. I think it, it definitely, definitely it depends on, you know, from, from my perspective where I am now going into kind of various different types of organizations, it is entirely dependent on the maturity, uh, the maturity of the engineers within that organization. If you're going in trying to put in config management into an organization that is, it's not their line of business. It's an internal IT run organization. Then, then it then that jump is going to feel like epic to them. But if you're going into an organization that has operational staff, that has engineers that consider IT essentially their business, um, even if it might not be necessarily, and um, they consider it a core function of their business then they have engineers that might care about that sort of stuff. So even if they don't know it necessarily, they're going to have a much smoother time. I, I, I think too, I mean, yeah, it's like also like Conway's law in action, right? You know, so depending upon the the culture of the organization is how you're going to feel comfortable about, um, you know, in, in a high trust organization is where you're going to feel good about moving stuff to the left and saying like, sure, it's I'm not scared to let Puppet or Chef run every half an hour on my nodes because actually and, and the thing is, you know, it's 
it's like, I don't remember even the context, but Adam was like, sometimes when people feel some way really strongly in their gut, they argue with math, right? I can sit and I can prove to you on the whiteboard why when you tell me you want Chef to run once every once a month on your notes, you should be scared shitless of what's going to happen when it runs, right? But if it runs every half an hour, you should feel super good about it. And I can tell you that, but if you are in a non-trust culture, it doesn't matter. You'll argue with the math, right? You know, and you have to kind of be able to to get to that. And I think that there's organizations where if it's not one where, uh, you know, like you say, failure leading to inquiry, right? Like if you don't have that idea where instead failure leads to like punishment or failure leads to let's put up a blocker wall to make sure this never happens, you end up with, with all these artificial walls that could be fixed in a different way, but you sort of have a very symptomatic fix to it, right? Which is the, oh, well, one time somebody screwed this thing up. So now we need to make it so nobody can ever release anything ever. Unless it's the forms filled out in triplicate. And it's like, uh, but wait, that's not really the problem. So I think that's challenging. I think the other thing that I've started to realize is living in the DevOps vendor bubble. I, you know, you, you kind of forget that like certain concepts like test-driven infrastructure or write your testing infra code and everything that is just, I'm just like, dude, that's table stakes, man. No, it's so not right. You know, and I think as vendors and as, as partners and people who are practically trying to help people, we need to remember that like what we think is the bear is, is table stakes is not. And we need to like bring people up to some of those most basic things. And it's too bad that Trevor's mic doesn't work because he's got a super good story about this. So Trevor, you want, do you want to try to talk? It's too bad because he has this great story about like teaching test-driven development to an infrastructure engineer and them having that light bulb moment of going, oh, cool. So now I totally know that it's going to work. And now I can feel good about that. There, unfortunately, is still quite a few admins who uh, still use dot back as their source control system. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work to uh, and, and expecting someone who's at that level to jump into Chef and Puppet is probably not realistic um, or very, be very difficult. Um, so it's it's a lot of uh, baby steps to to learn the fundament, the absolute fundamentals of, of working in this type of way. So what is proper source control? You know, what is configuration management at a basic level? What is, how do you test your infrastructure? You know, what test frameworks are there out there? Uh, there's a lot of stuff to to get someone who's not working in this kind of mode. Um, there's, there's a lot to get them up to speed. Um, uh, you know, there is one instance where a person I was working with, uh, um, and he's been doing IT for, I don't know, 30 years. And he's like, you know, I'm basically learning my job all over again with all these new tools. And I was like, yeah, you, you kind of are. You know, there's, you know, source code systems, there's testing frameworks, there's configuration management, there's new monitoring tools. There's a lot for some for people to swallow. I, maybe it's, I don't know, it's this um, just my perspective, but it seems like from the Linux side, most configuration management effort came from the dev side. Like a bunch of developers said, I want to build servers better. And the Windows side seems to be sort of led more from the ops side. And they're just, they don't have that skill set of 
working with software the same level so maybe where people were piecing it but that's like i mean luke was a sysadmin adam was a sysadmin you know the the only person who's like the i i wrote infra software and have never stood foot in a data center before is mitchell at HashiCorp, which i always thought was funny he wrote faker and he's never never set foot in a data center i'm like well that's pretty cool that you could do that but there's there is sort of that but it's i think it's true though is the approach and this is one thing i will tell you that i learned i sort of knew it but i learned it a lot from doing pre-sales at chef is there is like that notion of Linux admins are good. They're programmers, right? Because like that's that's very Unixy, right? Like you have to like you write code, you do that stuff. You're command shell junkie, you know. Fuck the GUI, blah blah blah. Windows are all click next admins, blah blah blah. And I gotta tell you, man. So I've been out there. I've seen a lot of companies in the last couple of years. I've seen a bunch of Windows admins that can shred PowerShell like crazy, and a bunch of them are on this call. I have seen so many Linux admins that are like, you're taking away my blade logic where I click, but wait, but no, but in this thing, I get to click a button and it does a thing. I want to do that. So there's, first of all, I just, I, I, I'm just trying to spread that gospel that like, let's make sure people understand that like being bad at command line knows no operating system. <laughs> I think, I think the scary thing, from what we see now is that there's this incredible there's this such a huge spectrum of maturity now where you've got you've got and this is culturally and in terms of tooling where you've got you know you've got one end that is on specifically around windows where you've got line of business applications you've got really legacy stuff that people still have that just just frankly isn't automatable um, it's never, never been written that way. Um, but still people have to manage it. And then you've kind of got this, what I see is this middle ground kind of arguably golden age where we're at now of, of, you know, we have config management. Um, you know, we have the new shiny Terraform, uh, the HashiCorp suite of tools, um, that we can kind of do everything with. Um, and, you know, even, you know, even the, things specifically around PowerShell, the ecosystem of additional, uh, you know, tools and the PowerShell gallery and everything is, is really starting to mature now. So we're kind of in this golden age of, of we have the tools to, to manage it. The software that's being written is taking automation into account. Um, and, you know, everything seems kind of happy. And like you say, you know, more people are aware of these tools. So they're starting to reskill. Unfortunately, the way our industry moves is just as these people are starting to reskill, we pull the rug under them, and then we bring in all the shiny new things like, like the the, the containers, um, you know, like, you know, doing crazy things like, you know, .NET Core on Kubernetes, like, all the stuff that's like kind of on the edge. And you know, what we're doing there is is you know saying, okay, great, you know, you've just spent four years learning Puppet. Well, you might not need to do that as much anymore. Um, because this is what the next shiny thing is, but there's definitely like, I think I think we're definitely in a golden age of of, of managing Windows. Um, I do think there's some you know scary things in the in the future, um, but actually, ninety percent of what we're seeing now is actually the other end is the horrible heinous, 
you know, BAU apps that were never written for this. Um, I can give you a concrete example uh, that might terrify you. Um, apparently, what's running the, of the Windows workloads that are running on AWS right now, 30% of them are 32-bit operating systems. So 2003, Windows 2000 is running on AWS. I can, that's a fact. Um, and so people are putting things there that were never 100% were never meant to be there, but they're doing it because, you know, this tools to allow them to do it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we're in this age of, of just kind of madness, really, quite frankly. It's a, it's a tough transition, and I think that's the hard part. I think you summarized that super well. And I guess the last thing I would, would think about when we when we look at this, like the, the two bits of advice that I would think of for someone looking at this is number one is, again, is it's like don't boil the ocean and don't get into analysis paralysis, right? This is the thing that I see when people say, like, now we're going to do – we're going to chef all the things or we're going to continuously deliver all the things or whatever – they sit down and they need to think of every corner case and like, okay, so how are we going to make the whole thing highly available and super scalable? And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, you don't have a single node under management yet. Why do you give a shit? Right? Like write some code, do some stuff, make it better later. Right. Or the same thing of like, well, we shouldn't build a pipeline for our puppet modules. Cause we haven't run any tests yet. Fine. Have a, have a pipeline that does nothing, but just shoves it through. And that's how it deploys. And, put the tests on later and figure it out as you go. And, and it's like, avoid the yaks. And like, I have this problem myself. I'm going through it with, I'm like, Oh, okay. I want to rewrite some front end code. So I'm like, Oh, well, you know what? Wouldn't I'm driving, you know, driving my car through them. Like, Hey, it'd be really cool. If like this thing, you know, did a Travis build job where it like did a selenium thing. And it like made sure that the logo looked right. And like the next thing I know, it's like four hours later and I'm, Futzing around with Phantom J, and and this is all for like some website that I'm the only one that writes code for anyway. So who cares, right? So it's super easy to like keep going into like pulling at threads, right, or shaving the yaks. Which is oh well, if I'm going to do this and I have to learn this testing framework, then I have to learn this and I have to learn this. And and wait a minute, how does Netflix do it? Oh well, they have all this stuff, so we better have all that too. And it's like yeah, just pick one thing. Do that one thing, then move on to the next thing. And I think that helps you with all that like new shiny also because you're componentizing it, right? So you're sitting there and like if you're saying, hey, okay, so we were using Puppet and doing all this stuff. And now it's like, oh, well, now we're going to do stuff with containers. So maybe I don't have to do config management. But along the way, when I was implementing Puppet, I was implementing some continuous delivery practices. And I was thinking about writing tests and thinking about my infrastructure as code in a way. So I can take that same because those are the harder things at the end of the day, like learning puppet syntax or chef code or, you know, Ansible or any of this nonsense. Right. Like that's that's the easy part because you can just go look that up on the Internet. You're just going to cargo cult somebody else's code anyway. But the thinking idea is what's super duper hard. So I think the more that you can, like, get the principles in place and we are running out of time. So um I would just I would I want to have one wrap up question from everybody. I'm going to maybe start to ask this question on the show, but I, I want to know what's your especially since we're now we're kind of talking on Microsoft show. What's your daily driver? So we'll kind of go around. I'll ask each of you what's your main workstation and what's your what's your kit on it that that you like used for for your stuff. So uh, Brandon, I'll let you go first. 
Uh, so I'm running a, uh, like a four year old Mac pro <laughs> cheese grater uh, nice. with, uh, with boot camp running windows 10 on it. So I had a, a former boss who left the company who had a really killer rig and I stole it from it when he left. <laughs> I've been running it ever since. Any especially cool tools that are like indispensable to you on your, on your kit? Uh, power shell. <laughs> power <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about you, Chris? Um, yeah, I have a corporate issue, Lenovo T450S, um, and, uh, nothing exciting hardware wise, but, uh, Visual Studio Code is definitely, uh, my current go-to tool because pretty much if I start messing around with something like a new language, I can just go pull down an extension and, the editor is the same and it just has all the language handling sort of built in. So Glenn. So MacBook Pro with no Mac OS on it whatsoever. <laughs> Windows ten all the way. Uh a lot of a lot of PowerShell, a lot of Hyper V. Uh Visual Studio Code is one of the only things I can do. Ruby, Puppet, PowerShell, YAML, blah, 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 blah. All in one editor. That's fair. And Git, of course. The integration's yeah. fantastic. I always find it ironic that Visual Studio Code's Git integration is better than Adam's. <laughs> <laughs> Liam? So I might be the odd one out here. So my, my hardware is, a, I'm a Dell XPS 13. Um, I'm running Ubuntu as my desktop OS. Uh, and I use, mostly I'm I'm doing a uh, bit of PowerShell, the open source PowerShell now. Um, write all of my stuff with Atom. Um, and then all of my Windows stuff, I run uh, Windows 10 uh, in a VM. Um, but I'm mostly, yeah, I mostly use that to do a bit of PowerShell dev and any RDP-related issues. Ruben, what are you rocking? So I have a department-issued uh, Dell, I think it is, but I don't use it because it's a tank. Um, <laughs> so I run around on my own uh, Surface Pro 3 running Windows 10. Really like it. It's really nice. Um, I'm a console kind of guy, so I have my comp emulator um, and started using a lot of, um, oh, the ISC plugin. is an ISC plugin um, that was really nice. That's I've just forgotten about. But steroids. I'll, I'll note that. That's it, steroids. Yep. Um, that's been really good, but have been um, leaning more towards code now. Although I find... The terminal stuff is not quite there in, in VS Code for PowerShell, so I kind of stick back to um, IAC. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that those of you who are listening who don't know, so Trevor's having like massive AV problems, which is why you haven't heard from him since maybe he said his name at the beginning. But there is a, a running thing when I don't know if he still has it or not. But Trevor, at least at one point, had this like one of those 17 inch laptops that weighs like 50 pounds and, you know, 32 gig of Ram and 12 petabyte hard drive and all this crap. And so, you know how like they've got those stickers that say my other computer is an Azure data center. So I took that and just got rid of the other and on his, he had that on his computer and just sort of scratched out other. So it just said, my computer is an Azure data center because <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, I'm, Personally, uh, MacBook Pro 3, uh, I have a Surface Pro 3 that is running Windows 10. I've been, I almost installed 
Linux on it this uh, past weekend, but then there was like a weird mouse thing and I got bored and didn't do it. And then that would be the, then I wouldn't have any actual windows hardware anymore if I did that. So I'm debating, but it might be kind of fun to do because it's dorky. Uh, and yeah, so cool. So let's, uh, we sort of were alluding to him a little bit, like let's go into checkout. So Liam, what do you have for our listeners to uh, check out? So the first thing is, um, yeah, one of the tools I use every day um, for building infrastructure is Terraform. Um, James Turnbull is due to write a or complete a uh, his new book on Terraform. Uh, you can find that at terraformbook.com. It's expected to be exactly the same standard that you would expect from James. Um, so if you've read the Docker book uh, or the Logstash book uh, or his recent book, Art of Monitoring, um, you'll be familiar Um so yeah, that's that that's due apparently uh, the end of this year. So I look forward to that. Uh, the other thing is a non-technical pick. Um, I'm currently binge watching a show on Netflix called Black Mirror. It's a uh, kind of satirical dark comedy series from the UK. Um, you should you should go and watch it. It's it's, uh, it's a special special kind of comedy. Um, but yeah, it's, I've, I've been watching it since it aired in the UK. Um, and I've been kind of catching up and binge watching that recently. So yeah, that, that's my non-technical pick. Awesome. Brandon. Uh, so my pick is, uh, I've been playing a lot with, uh, uh, infrastructure testing with Pester and kind of using Pester what it, for what it wasn't originally designed for, but I see more and more people using Pester to test, you know, standard infrastructure things like, is my service XYZ running, you know, uh, can I hit a port or, you know, things like that. So my pick is the operation validation framework that Microsoft has out there on GitHub. I think it's included now in more recent builds of windows 10. And I think it ships with 2016 as well. Um, but it's a nice little framework for, uh, packaging up pester tests into a PowerShell module. Uh, so you can publish and version your tests which kind of creates a pretty powerful um, platform for uh, monitoring or doing basic monitoring with Pester. Um, pretty cool little tool. Um, Microsoft hasn't been a whole lot, uh, hasn't been very vocal about it, um, but it's out there at the checkout if people want to start playing with Pester for uh, testing infrastructure. Awesome. And then uh, Glenn, I'm sorry, Ruben. Ruben. Uh, the first one is... Uh, a repo by a guy called Ian Cooper. Um, he's a really smart guy um, and someone who seems to understand DevOps. So he's got one called Brighter, which is a command dispatcher uh, kind of pattern for a microservice. So I, I use that a lot for reference because it's got some really healthy abstractions and um, ways to get you to a better uh, microservice. Then I have uh, Serialog and Seek because I think uh, logging is way better than debugging because you can't really debug in production. Um, and the other one is a library by Full Hack who ported, I think it's Zach Holman's Scientist, which allows you, if you haven't got tests in your code, you can do um, parallel traces of code um, to test to see if your new code gives you the same as your old code, which is way cool. And you can reference that assembly in PowerShell. So it gives you a little bit more confidence when you go to release. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, now Glenn. 
Yes, my first pick is uh, Neo4j, which is a graph database and a bit of a shameless plug because I help out with the Windows side on that. They've got a free ebook from O'Reilly, so you can just sign up and actually learn all about graph databases. They're pretty cool. I do enjoy them. And my second one is Flow Perth. So I'm a bit from Perth, and what they do is they organise some two-day hack days and they get agile people, developers, engineers, and we work with not-for-profit organisations and we help solve their IT problems. So using our awesomeness for the forces of good. So we've uh, helped uh, Miracle Babies, we've helped uh, Fatherhood Project, so just some fantastic community outreach. That's awesome. Chris? Uh, okay, so my first one is uh, I'm a, a big fan of Git Kraken. Uh, it's a Git a GUI Git client written on uh, I think Electron, but uh, they also took it a step further and, and actually wrote a Git client in Node, so it doesn't have a dependency on Git.exe. Uh, it's it's pretty fast. It's good looking. Um, helps me actually do some fun branching and merging and stuff without having to spend too much time in the main pages of, of Git. Um, my other one, uh, actually Doug Fink pointed this out to me the other day is a go executable called Termeter, which does graphing at the console. So it does surprisingly good real time ASCII graphs. Like, so you can, um, pipe pretty much any like tab delimited data to it and you get graphs without pop-up windows or leaving your terminal i might have to check out that git kraken because like i'm a big fan of tower which is mac only and like i used to like be very anti-git guis till anytime you have anything more than very simple trees to look at you know but Getting any of the merge tools working right in Tower seems to be an exercise in futility. And so I was looking at that on the pro version of the Git Kraken. It's like it it has an in-app merge tool. And I'm like, yeah. that might be. It's a, it's a pretty good tool, too. I mean, it's not like cumbersome. So let me check that out. But I don't know. Messing with my uh, workflow. They use cross-platform, too. Uh, yeah. Git Tower just got released for Windows today. Oh, cool. Well, that's so that's sort of cross-platform. I'm just so used to like doing things a certain way. This this is terrible. I'm like like yes, DevOps, and then I'm like, don't change any of my stuff. <laughs> uh, so, Trevor, you gonna try your checkouts? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Really, really? Now it starts. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I'm looking at the. Uh, the, the blue Raspberry portable microphone. I'm not on it yet, but it looks small and not as heavy as my Yeti. Um, so much like my 17-inch laptop that I abandoned, I'm going to abandon the time. Um, also, uh, Factorio, which is a really fun collaboration game where you're building a rot. You've like crash-landed with a bunch of people and you gather to basically reinvent everything you need to get off the planet, which is kind of neat. Um, I've also been playing with PVPN, which is an open source implementation of the classic battle.net and Westwood servers. So if you've played like the original Diablo, Diablo 2, uh, Red Alert, those games, 
that was the it's an open source implementation of the the um, uh, the servers for that. I finally got it running, um, which took me Linux and how to use CMake. Um, and now that I got it running, just running, and I can connect to it and play games, I'm trying to stand it up inside a Habitat. Because shave all the yaks. So uh, those of you who couldn't understand half of what Trevor just said, there will be links and descriptions of all of his checkouts in the show notes at arresteddevops.com slash Microsoft 2. Uh, but we did want him to be here in spirit with his checkouts. Uh, my checkouts, I've just got a couple. So first, maybe it's weird to talk about an app that's only available on Apple devices on the Microsoft show. But lately, I've become enamored with an app called Bear Writer. That's B-E-A-R-Writer.com. And it's basically just like a notes app with like cool markdown stuff. And I'll probably love it for like, two months and then never open it again and move on to some other note thing. But right now I'm really enjoying it and it's nice. It's just very, very good across my iPad and phone and Mac and everything. Um, I've also decided to become obsessed with go. So I've been writing a bunch of go stuff just cause why not lately? And I recommend Nigel Poulton's uh, go fundamentals course on plural site was really, really good. So I mean, it's not free. You have to have a plural site subscription, but if you do, uh, it's just really good. And I look forward to checking out some more of his other stuff. And um, so Franklin Weber just released a plugin for the Atom text editor for InSpec. And you can get that at github.com slash chef dash training slash language dash InSpec. And he's also working on an extension for Visual Studio Code for InSpec as well. So check those out. Uh, I'm sort of trying to write an Atom plugin for uh, Linter for CookStyle instead of Rubocop. We'll see if that ever actually gets released. Uh, if you have an upcoming conference you'd like to see promoted on ADO, you can fill out the handy-dandy form at arresteddevops.com slash conf. So uh, guests, where can people find you on the internet or maybe in real life? Are you going to any cool conferences in the near future? Brandon? Uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm Dev Black Ops on Twitter, and uh, devblackops.io is where you can find me on, on my blog. And uh, the next conference I'm going to is the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit up in Bellevue in uh, April. Okay, uh, Liam? So the best place to find me is on Twitter, at Liam J. Bennett. Um, my next big event is um, I'm at reInvent in Vegas at the end of the month, um, which should be fun. Cool. Chris? I'm uh, Logical Diagram on Twitter, and uh, we'll also be at the PowerShell DevOps Global Summit in April. And Glenn? Uh, at Glenn Sardi on Twitter, and glennsardi.github.io if you want to check out my blog. Um, hoping to be at the PowerShell Summit in April in Bellevue, and hoping to be at DevOps Day Seattle in April as well. Awesome. And once I put my talk in, I hopefully might be speaking. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Sweet. Ruben, where can people find you? That sounded ominous. <laughs> so, a bit uh, at DevSol, uh, D E F S O L, on Twitter is primarily where I am. And down in the Southern Hemisphere, it's getting Christmas summertime. So, we're all talking about taking breaks and going to the beach uh, as opposed to going to any conferences. So, <laughs> conference cool. next year. Awesome. So, yeah. So, head over to arrestdevops.com slash Microsoft 2. That's the number two. Uh, for this episode's show notes, you know, our website has links to sign up for our newsletter, 
you can get merchandise. We got cool shirts. You can support us on Patreon so we can do this more often. Basically, all the rest of DevOps stuff you could ever want and maybe even some stuff you don't want. Uh, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps people find the show. And uh, yeah, so I would thank you, panel. This was great. I'm really excited. We had a lot of really smart conversations, I thought, and we didn't break Google Hangouts. That was awesome. So that was my goal. And with that, uh, I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We're arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. That was my terrible Trevor impression.